All right. Uh, Book of James, James chapter 1. On Sunday, we introduced the Bible study exercise for the next six to seven weeks, which will be on the subject of temptation. We started doing a little bit of work on James, a little bit of work on the word uh, temptation. Uh, We did a little bit of work on trying to define it. Um, In a podcast episode, we did a little bit more work on trying to define it and try to deal with some of the issues. Uh, We have a clear issue here, but we won't deal with the issue here. We'll deal with the issue on the podcast. We'll try to just make this, uh, we'll skip those types of issues, and then hopefully we can uh, advance it a little bit further. Uh, Before we even really get into it, I think we can, uh, as I think I I I said this on Sunday, maybe I said it in the podcast, but everyone, or at least from my perspective, if you describe what is emphasized in Christianity, I think I talked about this on Sunday, when you talk about what Christianity emphasizes, it emphasizes over and over and over right behavior and wrong behavior. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. And then there's a lot of basically how-to books, how to stop doing this and how to start doing this. Here are the disciplines you need. You need to avoid this. You need to do this. You need to be a better husband, a better wife, a better employee, a better citizen, a better this, a better that. And Christianity basically is in a never-ending cycle of quote-unquote self-improvement. Now, they would say it's not self-improvement. It, it, we're, 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 we are relying on God, but, it, but even though they say we're relying on God, they obviously write the books to tell you how to, right? So obviously, relying on God is not enough. You've got to get all the books telling you how to do this and how to do that. And part of the problem is because preaching, if you just get really academic, nobody likes it, nobody wants that. They want that practical. They want the three points. They don't want to deal with all of the questions and issues. In other words, Christianity, no matter how much we want to say, it's, not, it's, it's become a lot less about knowing and much more about doing, right? And all well, we want to know some stuff, but even if we say you're going to know something, I got to give you three points of applications to make the knowing worth knowing because just knowing it is not enough. So that's why even when you teach, uh, they preach text that clearly is more, descriptive than it, than it is prescriptive, it turns into a prescriptive sermon because you got to give people something. You got to give people something. So we live in this never ending cycle of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And, but at the same time, there is an acknowledgement, a reality. I mean, clearly they wouldn't be writing all the books if everyone was already doing it. So there's an acknowledgement, whether explicitly or just implied, that we're not doing those things and that we fall short. We're not, we fell here, we fell here, we got to do this, we got to do that. And so then there's all these things in trying to fix it, but when you start talking about it, these sermons always become somewhat popular, is you start talking about temptation, because temptation is the thing calling us or trying to entice us not to do the right thing or to do the wrong thing. So then we have to have all of these books and conferences on how to deal with temptation, how to overcome temptation. Because if we can overcome temptation, then we will do the right things and we'll stop doing the wrong things. So there is a lot of perspectives on the subject of temptation. There have been classic books written on it. I mean, there's a book written, it feels like, every month on the subject. Because Christians, the one thing we all know, whether Christians want to admit it, is that we all continue to sin. And so... If temptation is the thing pulling us towards sin, if we can stop temptation, we can stop sinning, and then everybody would be happy, right? 
That's, that's the, in theory, that's the way it works. And of course, it continues and continues and continues. So I tried to give a definition on Sunday. I tried to give a definition on Sunday. And right now, Siri wants to give us some information about temptation. I don't know why Siri came on. All right, no Siri. We're good. Thank you. Okay, good. Great. Glad to hear it. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why Siri, I don't know why she decided to come on. Okay. I, oh, yeah, I know. I say her name and she comes back. Okay, listen. Stop listening to my sermon. Okay, all right. Here we go. But um, we started working on definitions. And I, and I kind of gave a working definition on Sunday. I told everyone to work on it, think about it. Let's try to, to try to work on it more. I did a, a podcast episode where I asked the listeners to work on it, and I got, I got a couple of, of, of reworks of the definition I gave that was simply a work in pro, progress. And here is what I got. Here's, a, here's at least one of them, maybe a couple of them here, but I'm going to read at least one, all right? Well, the one I got was this. Temptation, an enticement to sin, arising either from the internal corrupt nature of man or from an external object, situation, or circumstance that works upon the corrupt nature that attempts to provoke a response, whether in thought, word, desire, or action that is contrary to the word of God. I mean, they went in. They, they added everything here. They, they really, really, really worked hard on trying to come to what's up. There's more here, but this, so I'll just read this again. So temptation is an enticement to sin. All right, we got that. Now remember, when we looked up the word, there were three parts. Everybody remember those three parts to temptation? No, the, the three parts of the word, the meaning of the word. Okay, well, they, they got all three parts. If you don't remember, that's okay. That's okay. okay do what? Yeah, testing, trial, and enticement. Testing, trial, enticement, right? Remember, we talked about the enticement and the trial, but all of them serve as a test, remember? And then I tried to explain why I counted all joy, I think, involves all three of these, or at least I, I think I did that here. I know I did it on the podcast. So just watch how they try to bring all of this together. All right, here we go. An enticement to sin. There's the enticement to sin, Right? And that this arises from internal corrupt nature of man or from an external object, situation, or circumstance that works upon the corrupt nature that attempts to provoke a response, whether in thought, word, desire, or action, that is contrary to the word of God. All of it's there. Got got all of that there? Okay. Now, Now, listen, which is intended to reveal to ourselves our internal corruption, to bring forth humility and reveal to us our weakness. There's the kind of the testing type of thing, all right? Uh, And they they said that's the best that they're able to articulate it so far. Then they mentioned the other problem that the text provides that we're not going to get into. The only thing they probably did not completely put forth is this is how I would have probably have written this, that temptation is an enticement to sin or trial, an enticement to sin, or a trial, okay? No, or you could say this, it's an enticement to sin arising either from internal corrupt nature of man, from an external object, no, well, they put situation or circumstance, but I may put arising from an external object, situation, 
or circumstance or trial that works upon the corrupt nature. And remember, most commentators, most Christians want to separate temptation from trial as almost two separate things. I refuse to do that because the Greek word brings them literally together. Remember, all three are mentioned in the Greek word. Everybody, everybody remember this from Sunday? All three is there, right? All three. So here's what I like to do. Tempta- the reason a trial, why is a temptation a trial? Or why is a trial a temptation? Well, that, that's the testing part. Because any trial is enticing you. To, I mean, because when, when you go through a trial, does it, does, it, does it make you feel like, oh, I should respond to this in a great way, in a godly way, in a correct way? No, as soon as you face that trial, you're confronted with what? To respond in a wrong way because your nature doesn't like it, right? I mean, does your nature like it? No, as soon as a trial happens... Your response is almost always going to be moving in a way that is, I think Bobby was about to say it, contrary to God's word, which is the word I kept using a lot on Sunday, right? The trial is, so I think that a temptation is an enticement to sin arising either from internal corrupt nature or from an external object, situation, or circumstance. And I'm going to add the word trial to it, even though obviously situation or circumstance would include a trial, but trial, that works upon the corrupt nature. It works upon the corrupt nature. A trial works upon the corrupt nature. Right? right. And then, um, so now we've got ex- enticement, we've got trial, all there. Um, and then it provokes a response, whether in thought, word, desire, or action that is contrary to the word of God. So they, and their first paragraph they brought it all, they brought both together. They just didn't use the word trial. They used the word situation or circumstance, which obviously includes that, all right? Then the next sentence, which is intended to reveal to ourselves, there's the testing, to reveal to ourselves our internal corruption to bring forth humility and to reveal to us our weakness. They brought it, they got it all. They brought it all in. So I don't know if that's going to be the one we, I stay with before the seven weeks are over, but that's one of the best ones that I've received so far. They really did the work, and I appreciate that they, they put forth the time to, to, to try to figure that out. But go back to James 1. Now we're going we're gonna to try to work on the text a little bit. All right, James chapter 1. Verse 2. Now, even though this is not what the curriculum wanted us to focus on, I became preoccupied with verse 2. And the reason I became preoccupied with verse 2 is because it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, many translations don't have the word temptation there. In fact, the NIV probably doesn't have the, uh, the word temptation there. It has the word trials. Because they try to draw a distinction between trial... And then later on, it's going to have the word temptation. I, I reject it. We count it all joy when we fall into temptation because a trial is a temptation. And remember, I really try to emphasize, why do we count it all joy? Remember, I, I really argued against the way it, kind of the educational system works. The ed- educational system gives tests really to try to decide who, and a quote, wins the game, who passes, who, who's the best, who's the highest GPA, who's the valedictorian, who's the salutatorian, who's on the honor roll, right? Well, to me, the test is there to do what? To reveal what we 
don't know so we can improve. It's, we should count it all joy. If you get a, a, an F, the way the school system works is one, you're humiliated. Two, you can be held back. Three, you could go home and get beat depending on the type of parent you have or get grounded. It's all negative. So we're trained that if we see a temptation or something, not to count it all joy. But we should count it all joy because immediately what are we confronted with? Whether it's a trial or a temptation, I think that those are basically synonymous. What does it immediately reveal? It reveals what we need to learn, right? That's a positive thing. We see it as a negative thing, right? We're like, oh, no, 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 no. All we care about is, did we sin? Oh, we look, look, we look at it as a pass and fail, do we not? Oh, I didn't commit the sin. I'm good. Yeah, but did you want to commit the sin? Did you think about committing the sin? Did you desire the sin? Count it all joy because now you know you're not as strong as you thought you were, even if you didn't sin. Because if you felt the pull, if you felt the desire, if you felt the want, that tells you what? Oh, I got some issues. So, and even if you sin, I know it's a bad thing, but in some ways we should count it all joy because that shows I got some serious problems because we all do. Does that make sense? So count it all joy. And I'm going to use the word temptation because I think it, because the Greek word there brought up all three, right? And I'm not going to go back and review the Greek word because we, we spent all Sunday doing that. Okay. Everybody got that? Now there's more we could work on here, but we're going to skip down. All right. To verse 13. Now, this is what we're not going to cover in church. Uh, James 1.13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Not going to deal with that here, because that's going to be nothing but complications, questions, difficulties, and I'm going to focus on that on the podcast and leave that out of here. So if we're going to skip that, what do we do? Well, we have to go to verse 14, right? 13, I mean, that, like, and for those listening online, we will get to it, but that's just... That's not going to be a fun sermon. That's just going to be like a lot of difficulty. So we're going to skip that. Verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That's what we're going to work on, all right? Because the how God is involved or not involved is a, is a, is a never-ending difficulty. For example, the person who sent that definition wrote this. Um, as far as how to uninvolve God, not sure I have a great solution for that, have been trying to divide it into passive and active involvement to get it to make sense. So that, that's one of the assignments I gave everyone in the Bible study exercise on the podcast is to work on it. So people are trying to come up with their solutions. So I'll try to solve that there. Just know James states it in a dogmatic way that who doesn't tempt us? God, that's... And I'm not going to get into all the problems with it. Okay, I'm not going to get into all the problems. So we can just set that aside. All right? So the next verse deals with what? How would we describe the next verse? If we were to describe what the next verse is about. Like how would we, what would we call this? Okay, the way of temptation. Okay. Okay. Okay, would, would everyone agree that the source of temptation would be an acceptable way to call this, right? 
Where does temptation come from, right? Now, remember, Christianity operates on do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. So whatever is trying to pull us away becomes very important to identify. What is the source of the temptation causing us to sin, 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 sin? And this verse offers what James thinks is the source of said temptation, right? So we're just, now we're not even going to look at the previous verse, but we'll look at this one and we're going to break it down, all right? So the first thing we're going to do, we're going to look up the meaning of a bunch of uh, words here, okay? We're going to look up the Greek words for the three English words we're going to look up. We're going to look up tempted, drawn, and lust. Everybody see those? Well, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna look up in the blue letter. We're gonna look up in the blue letter Bible app. That's what we're gonna. We're just gonna look up the Greek words for each one of these. All right. Does everybody see them all listed right there? Right. Uh, let no man say when he is tempted. Okay. For God. Uh, I'm sorry. Verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We'll put the word enticed in there as well. So we'll go with. Uh, tempted, drawn, lust, and enticed. Okay, so let's, we're just going to do a little Greek word study on all of these, and then we're going to try to put it all together. All right, here we go. So let's go to the book of James, chapter 1. The verse we're looking at tonight is verse 14, right? Everybody agrees? That's the one? Okay, that's the one we're working on. All right, whenever man is tempted. Now, it's going to be a different Greek word than we looked at earlier, that we looked at on Sunday, but it's going to have some of the same basic concepts to it, all right? The Greek word is this. Strong's G, 3985, Pyrazzo. Pyrazzo. Pyrazzo is used how many times in the King James? 39 times. Pyrazzo is, is translated tempt 29 times, try four times, tempter two times, prove one time, examine, go about. Now, just right there, tempt, try, examine, prove, you're getting some of the ideas, right? We're getting kind of those same three ideas. We're going to get kind of an enticement to sin. We're going to get a testing. And we're going to probably get a trial or, or some kind of thing like that. We're getting the basic ideas. Correct? The strong definition of parazzo is what? What's the very first one? To test. Endeavor. Scrutinize. And what's the next word? Entice. Are we getting all the same words, right? Discipline. Uh, examine, go about, prove, tempt, try, you get, you get the basic ideas, right? The uh, outline of biblical usage, which typically comes from Thayer's Greek lexicon, to try whether a thing can be done, to attempt, endeavor, to try, make trial of, test, for the purpose of ascertaining his quality, uh, in, a, uh, in a good sense or in a bad sense, to try to test one's faith, virtue, character, by enticement to sin. All right, so we have all of the basic concepts. And the only reason I want to stress that is everything we said on Sunday about temptation is still true. What are the three basic elements? Enticement. Trial. Okay. And test. Okay, yes, all right. Enticement. Well, can, we get, can we get these down, all right? The three basic parts, all right? And I want to get this down because I don't want to spend this whole hour doing what we did Sunday, okay? Is enticement, trial, test. The reason I put enticement and trial together is the enticement and trial make up the test. Does that make sense? 
It uses enticement of the trial in order to, to, to give us the test. Remember how those all three go together, right? So, though, so in other words, we don't have to say parazo. Oh, oh, it's, it's a different Greek word. It's a different Greek word, but it has the same basic elements, yes? We can find some slightly different things, but the basic three things are still there. So, so far, so good? All right, so go to, back to James 1.14. Every man is tempted... I just think, but every man is tempted when he is, next Greek word, or is, or the next English word is drawn, and the English word, or the Greek word is, when he is drawn away, is the way the uh, interlinear has it, meaning when he is drawn away, that whole phrase comes from one Greek word, and that Greek word is, everybody ready? Strong's G, 1828, Exelco. Excelco. 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 Now, Excelco is used, guess how many times? Once. Guess where it's used? Here. And guess what it's translated as? Draw away. Excelco uh, means to, already, to drag forth. Figuratively, to entice to sin. To draw away. Now, if you look at Thayer's Greek, Greek lexicon, do you see what it says here? Well, even if you look at outline of biblical usage, to draw out a metaphor, to lure forth in hunting and fishing as game is lured from its hiding place. So man, by lure, is allured from the safety of self-restraint to sin. The language of the hunting is transferred to the seduction of a harlot. All right? So it's, it's something that is luring. It is something that is enticing. It is something that's trying to draw you out. So every man, when they are tempted, is drawn. What is the exact wording in the King James? Drawn away? Drawn away. Now we're being drawn away from something, right? Now we've already kind of defined it in our definition of, tempt, of, of temptation. You're being drawn away, enticed. To do that, it, listen, to think, speak, desire, feel, and act in a way contrary to God's word. You're being drawn away. And I'll go through those again. You're being drawn away. I think on that definition, we, uh, they, we, they forgot the, uh, the words. Uh, they forgot to add speech in there. But we are drawn away in thought. Speech, feeling, desire, action to do that that's contrary to God's word. So in other words, the thinking is going to be different. It's going to be an uh, opposition to God's word or contrary to God's word. The speaking is going to be contrary to God's word. The desire is going to be contrary to God's word. The feeling is going to be desire to contrary and the action. Because remember, we don't even need the action to be guilty, yes? And that's always the biggest problem in the evangelical church is we focus so much on the action that just because someone has never committed the action, they may have, they may have committed the sin more than the person who did so in the action. Isn't that the weird part? The people sitting there with the stones, because they've got the rocks, right? They're ready to kill someone. Because they never committed the action, but they may have actually committed the sin more than the person they're stoning. 
Christianity is so weird on this, right? So I want to make it, so we are drawn away. We are enticed, lured away. Now, immediately, what would we think? Well, every man is tempted. We know what temptation is now. We've, We've defined it, right? Okay. And we are drawn away. We're enticed. We want to avoid sin, yes? So then immediately we'd be like, we got to get rid of that thing that's drawing us away. Right? We got to get rid of the harlot. We got to get rid of the whatever it is. We got to get rid of it because it's drawn. We got to get rid of Vegas. We got to get rid of Netflix. We got to get rid of HBO. We got to get rid of music. We got to get rid of books. We got we to gotta go to the city council and get all the books removed from the library. We got to stop this stuff. And I can see why, because we don't want to be drawn away or enticed, right? And we, come on, let's be honest. We all think that way in our Christian life, right? Like, hey, be careful over there. That person, person's going to entice you. That person's going to draw away. I'm not saying we should ever ignore that, but this is going to go, this does not go in that direction, does it? There's a plot twist coming here, right? There's a major plot twist, Right? Everyone ready? Here we go. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own. Of his own. Next word, lust. Let's look up the word lust. Let's look up the word lust. Let's look up the word lust. The Greek word for lust is, are you ready? This is a fun one to say. 1939. Epithemia. 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 Isn't that fun to say? Epithemia. All right. Epithemia. If I have to actually look at it or I'll say it incorrectly. Epithemia. Now, it's used how many times? 38 times. 31 times is lust. So most of the time it's defined as lust. Desire. You get the basic idea, right? Uh, It's uh, Strong's definition. A longing, especially for what is forbidden. Concupiscence, that's, that's a word that we don't really, really use. Desire, lust after. Outline of biblical usage. Desire, craving, longing. Desire for what is forbidden, lust. Now just know, it can be you're desiring for something good. It can be, but in this particular case, that's not the case, right? So here's what happens. Every man is tempted when he is Lord, when he has drawn away his own lust. Meaning, the source is where? The problem is inside. The problem is inside. And then it says your own lust. And then what does it say? And entice. Let's look at the word enticed. I'm in the wrong verse. Enticed. It is this Greek word. Strong's G, 1185, Dela Adzo. Dela Adzo. Dela is used three times. One time entice, one time beguile, and one time allure. Dela Adzo means to bait, catch by a bait, to beguile, Allure, entice, or uh, deceive. Della Adzo is, is basically, it's like a bait that's there, right? 
It's like a bait that's there trying to entice you. So what happens? We have, so uh, if we read it correctly, every man is tempted, right? That temptation is what? An enticement or a trial, which attempts to get us in our mind or our words or our feelings or, or our desires or our actions to do that which is contrary to God's word. Everybody got that? Okay, so we got that. Now, what happens? How does this work? It, the source of it is when every, every man is tempted when? When he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. What is doing the enticing? Our own lust is doing the enticing. It is our own lust that is drawing away. Is that a correct way to read that? Does everyone think that's a correct way to read that? Or does anyone disagree with that rendering? Right? I don't think any translation would change that rendering in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to read, I'm going to read from this translation that I have right here. Because I think it's very important to note. Here, uh, it says, um, this translation... But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. What is doing the drawing away? What is doing the enticing? Our own evil desire. It's my own evil desire. That's the problem. The problem is inside. It's not external. Christianity has been yelling and screaming about the external for 2,000 years. We scream, we condemn everything. The world, it's so bad. And I can't believe this. And can you believe they're doing that? And, and we yell and scream and we want to silence it. We want to censor it. We want to condemn it. I don't know where we, why we think that. The problem is where? Inside of us. Now, how do we define that problem? What do we call that problem? A sin nature. Now, immediately, remember, we've already dealt with this. Some people believe either, one, the sin nature is eradicated in salvation. Two, they believe we get a new heart. And so, basically, the old heart is gone. Well, if, we, if the sin nature is eradicated... And the old, uh, we get a new heart. Then where in the world is the temptation coming from? So then you would have to render this. This can only be referring to lost people. It can't be referred to saved people. But then we know it's referring to saved people. Right? Yeah, I mean, I count it all joy. I mean, like, obviously this is not giving advice to lost people. So that means lost people are tempted. And why are we tempted? Because of our own lust. And the fact that, listen, I cannot stress this. If I am tempted because I am drawn away by my own lust and my own evil desires and I'm enticed by that, that's the bait that hooks me, right? That's the bait that grabs me. Then nobody, if you believe that, can then turn around five seconds later and say, well, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. That would be the most foolish, ignorant thing you could say because clearly if I'm still being tempted by my own lust the old is gone the old is not gone and everything is clearly not new how can we you could give these two verses to a Christian and they would say both are true 
I don't even know how that is even, how can any rational person real? no, something's wrong. So clearly, the new creature, the old is gone. That is referring to my position, not referring to my practice, because in my body, right? Remember, I kept saying the verse that no one wants to admit when we get into all of these debates about salvation, lordship salvation. Nobody wants to acknowledge what Paul said at the end of Romans 7. Where does he serve God? Mind, where does he serve sin? And it's like, meaning he still sins. Nobody wants to acknowledge that. Nobody wants to acknowledge. It's an inside problem. Now, here's, here's the question. Well, first of all, let's just do some scriptures. There are a lot of scriptures we can come up with. Let's see if there's any scriptures that would support this idea, right? So if we put this all together, what do we have? We are tempted and we are drawn away By what's inside of us. That's a simple way to put it, right? Okay. If you put all the words together, we are drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It's our lust and enticed. The enticement comes because of what we lust. In other words, not all enticements are going to be the same for every person. That's also a very important thing to realize, right? What entices Bobby will not entice me because what's the determinant factor in what entices Bobby and what entices me? Our own lust. And our own lust is different. We are all depraved, but that depravity manifests itself in radically different ways. That's how come for some weird reason we're like, I don't understand why they could do that. How did they ever do that? Well, thank you, Mr. Sanctimonious. Because I don't understand how you never do, like, I don't understand your problem. But what I do know is we have both what? A sinful nature. The problem is inside. We, we, our solution is always get rid of it. But I'm telling you, you can get rid of everything. You can gouge out your eyes. You can cut off your hands. You can lock yourself in a monastery. Just you, your mind is going to commit enough sin that it would send you to hell and everyone else around you. No matter how much we want to say it wouldn't. All right? So, let's see if, does other scripture seem to support said idea? I'll just give you three, all right? Now, one of them is the one that people would argue against. If you can think of another that would support this idea, let me know. But go to Romans chapter 7. Now, remember, Christians have been trying to argue these passages away for 2,000 years. So I'm not going to get into all the complications with them, but just so that you know, Romans chapter 7, verse 17 says, Now then, it is not, it is, okay, if I can read correctly, Romans 7, 17. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but... Sin that dwelleth in me, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Now, some would say, that's Paul before he was saved. Okay, I I get so tired of that whole never-ending argument. And and I understand why they have to hold to that argument, right? Because you've got to argue, there's going to be a change in a Christian. And therefore, I can judge that change to determine whether you're saved. And Paul is saying what is still in us. And if sin is still in us, what can I expect? Sin to be a part of my, go through them again, thinking, speech, feeling, 
desire, and action. And does it not show up in all of those areas? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. There's Romans 7, 17, right? And does Paul not then talk about all of the struggles he have here? Right? And he even, and again, I don't know how this could be a lost person, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. How in the world is that a lost person? I, they, what, you know how they get around it. I did, well, I did a podcast, a lots of podcasts on this, that that's referring to a Jew who likes the Old Testament law, but he's not saved. That this is an unconverted Jew. Okay, well, that's wonderful. Then what describes a saved person then? Well, then they want to go to the passages that basically say, you're dead, you're a new creature. Okay, that's, that's well, yeah, say 20, 25. You think 25 would destroy their argument because at that point, Paul clearly is speaking as a saved person, right? Okay, all right, but, as, but it says, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because that's how, unlo- that's how uh, lost Jews talked. And how lost Jews talk? Okay, give me a break. Obviously not, right? So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. That's even after he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, he still acknowledges that there's still sin where? In the flesh. Now, I want you to try to wrap your mind around how the weird world Christianity then finds itself. Christianity is in a weird Logic, like the logic here, I don't get Christianity. Because the logic, the Christianity says, do what? Don't sin! Stop sinning! But the Bible seems to say, you get a nature that's going to draw you to sin over and over and over and over. Wait, don't sin! But you got a nature. How do you process that? How do you work, like, how do you fix, how do you deal with that? Okay, well, yeah, we do a lot of not, we do a lot of pretending is what we do, which, and then over and over and over, it's revealed in the church how messed up we are, over and over and over and over and over, and, and that's only for the people who are found out. That doesn't count all the people who aren't found out, because guess what, even if they're not doing anything in practice, <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff going on on the inside. But, but go to Jeremiah 17, 9. You know this one. All right. All right. We don't have to look it up. Jeremiah 17, 9. No, I understand. Listen, I understand Jeremiah 17, 9. I understand all the arguments against it. I understand the Septuagint. I definitely does not have the same translation. We understand all the problems. Okay. And I understand some believe that that's the depraved nature. But when you get saved, you get a new heart. But what does Jeremiah 17, 9 say? The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Okay. All right. Look, put it this way. You can argue all day about why the, um, the, the Hebrew text is different than the Septuagint. You can argue all day and try to claim that I have a new heart and that's no longer true of me. But there's never a verse that's more proven to be true just in our everyday life than Jeremiah 17, 9. Okay. That's proved every day. All right, look at 1 John 1, 8. I think this one is interesting. We know it.
1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, I, I can't dogmatically assert and I cannot textually prove or grammatically prove this, but to me, I, I feel that there's a little, that a little bit of what's going on there is more, it's not just talking about individual sins. It's saying, if we say we have no, if we say we have no sin nature, if we say we are not sinners, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a it's a reference clearly to now I've heard people say that that's referencing lost people and not saved people. I, man, I, I actually a pastor called me one, one, one time and we had uh, yeah a pastor called me. We had like a two hour conversation and he just tried to con- no that is lost people. Saved people don't do that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I know. I I, I look man. Just, that, it's, yeah, I understand. Just the bottom line, no matter what verse I go to, there's going to be someone who's going to make some argument against it because that's the way Christianity for, for always works, okay? So, we've got 15 minutes to fix this. I'm not even trying to fix the other verse here, okay? All right, we have 15 minutes, and here's what we have to fix. You ready? Have we identified the source of our temptation? our own lust. So we have to start, how do we fix it? How do we combat it? How do we beat it? How do we defeat it? Now, question number one, all right? I'm just going to throw this out as a question before we start looking at some verses that people would point to. I read articles after articles, and basically most of the, almost all the articles you can find in Christianity basically says, you've now got the spirit, you can do it! You can stop sinning! And if you don't stop sinning, you proved you're not saved. Like, that's very, very close to lordship. Now, lordship always tries to say, but you're not going to do it perfectly, which then destroys the whole test. But okay, we, we've talked about that a million times. But here's the thing. Do we not have to acknowledge right from the start that whatever solution we come up with, it's going to be imperfect at the very best. Because what's the problem? Every man is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. The enticement comes from our lust. We haven't even dealt with, with we, so far we've focused on temptation. Now the, the person who wrote the definition talked about the external temptations, but it, it, it's all inside of me. Because again, you can talk about all the external temptations, but they have no power Unless I, well, unless my lust is, it has, has a desire for it, right? Like, like I, I, we talked about, I mean, you can, you can come give me all, you can offer me all kinds of things and many things will be like, yeah, that, okay, whatever, right? Drugs, eh, no big deal. Alcohol, no big deal. I don't have a problem with any. Like, there's all these things I don't have a problem with. And isn't it weird that we always tend to focus on the things we don't have a problem with to somehow prove how spiritual we are? That doesn't necessarily prove you're spiritual, does an unregenerate person desire every wrong thing? Not typically, right? So that we, we pat ourselves on the back and say, God has given me great victory. God has given me great victory. I do not drink. I, God didn't give me any victory over that. If I was an atheist, I wouldn't drink. That, wouldn't, that has nothing to do with it, right? So sometimes what we pat ourselves on the back as being self-righteous and God has done, it's just we don't have, our, our sinful nature is not tuned into that, right? Okay, so here's the thing. Whatever solution we come up with, at its very best, 
It's never going to be anywhere close to perfect because what continues to exist inside a Christian from from the moment of salvation to glorification? The sinful nature. And if the sinful nature continues to remain there, then what's going to continue to be present in your life and my life? Now, I don't know of any book written on temptation that starts off with saying, guys, I've got some bad news. One, temptation is never going away. And two, you're going to continue to sin. Thank you for spending $19.99 on my book on temptation. No, they always sell it that they've got the secret. They've got the secret. And typically, their, their methods are basically no different than what Alcoholics Anonymous would use or Narcotics Anonymous or any other. They basically just become fleshly self-help books. Because reality is, and I, nobody wants to hear that, but where's the problem? Sin nature. Does the sin nature go away? That means at our very best, we are still going to sin and fall into temptation and we're going to fall and succumb to temptation, and we're going to think, speak, feel, desire, and act in a way contrary to God's word. And is that not what we continually do? Now, I don't know how I process that. People tuning in going, oh, he's doing a series on temptation, and they just heard, no matter what I give you, you're going to fail. Nobody wants to hear that. So you say, so what do I do? You better know the gospel and cling to Christ and trust in his imputed righteousness because that's the only hope you got. If you think about it, every call to not do this and not do that and not do this, I don't want to go back to to, uh, the law and gospel series, but that's law and law condemns us. When it says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, I I don't want to do that. But or do that. I, I want to do the right and I don't want to do the wrong, but, I, I, but at my very best, with all of the principles ever written in the history of the church about temptation, we're still going to sin because the source of it is where? The call is coming from inside the house. Lock the doors, pull down the blinds, cancel all of your subscriptions. Be a godly little person who only, you know, hangs out with Christians. You're still going to be a sinner. Now, so what, so what, what can we point to? Well, I'm just going to, I don't know how you process these verses, but I'm just going to give you three because of time. All right, here we go. Go to Romans 13. I don't know how these work with this reality. I'll give you an example. I think it's 1 Timothy or is it 2 Timothy? I don't know which one it is. It says flee youthful lust. Right? That sounds good. Do you see a problem with that? How do I run away when the lust is where? How do I flee when it's inside of me? Right? Like, I don't know how I process that. But that, that's, that's not the verse I, I... It's one of the verses I wrote down, but then I decided not to write it down. But Romans 13 is a common one. 
Romans 13, 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I, that has to be a reference to salvation, don't you think? I mean, how else do I put him on? Unless I, I, that I get saved and then I have to do something else to put him on. Not only that, that would be a command telling me to do something. So even if it tells me that I'm supposed to do something, and even if we can figure out exactly what it means to put on Jesus, we know that we're never going to do it right. So I don't know. But I'm to put on Jesus. And what am I not to do? Don't make a provision for the flesh. Now, what's the idea of a provision? Okay, don't, just like, you know, if you are in the military, you're waiting for provisions to show up, right? They continue to bring in provisions to supply. And we are not to make provision for what? The, the flesh. Right? So in other words, now this one is at least, I think this one, we, we can at least operate at least some way with this one, right? Because it's at least telling me that I am not to do what? Continue to supply to the flesh what my lust wants. Is that, do you think that's a fair way of articulating that? Don't provide to my flesh what my lust wants. I got to cut off that provision. Now, that's no guarantee, right? Because, now just remember, it says so that I will not do what? Fulfill the lust. I don't think this is even a guarantee that I'm not going to, it's not a guarantee that I'm not going to have that lust. This is all that I'm doing is trying to cut off the provision so that I won't fulfill the lust. This is not even really giving me the key on how to not have the lust. It's just saying you've got, so basically what this is saying, you got to know the lust you have and then you got to go, if I get that, I'm going to fulfill it. Now, if you're not fulfilling it, that's great, but the lust is still there. Now, sometimes it's almost like we think if we don't make a provision for it, the lust will go away, but I don't think it's saying the lust will go away. Or or, or does does anyone think that I'm reading it incorrectly? I'm just not providing to the flesh so that I will fulfill the lust. I mean, it's, it's wonderful if I don't fulfill it, but they'll just make sure, I, that's another weird thing about Christianity, right? Like on one hand, I'm supposed to go, yay, I didn't fulfill it. But biblically and theologically, if the lot, well, no, it, biblically or theologically, if I'm lusting after it, if I look at a woman with lust, I committed the sin. So I may not hire the prostitute, But even if I don't hire the prostitute, if I lust for the prostitute, biblically, I'm already in sin. I'm not saying I should go hire the prostitute, but you see the weird world Christianity operates in? Because you can go, look at me. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But if I committed it here before God, I'm still a sinner. So I... I, I, by no all means, I'm for don't make the provision so that you will fulfill the lust. That's something we can do. But at the same time, we can't pat ourselves on the back going, I thank thee, God, that I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. I'm, you're all of those things in your mind. 
I'm not saying we should make the provision to fulfill it. I'm saying that that's the weird world Christianity operates in. We almost reduce it to as long as I don't commit the external act, I can brag, I can preach, and I can condemn. But if I do the external, then all of a sudden it's bad. Well, wait a minute, isn't it bad already? So sometimes I don't think we really believe the internal is near. I don't think we really believe it's that bad. How about uh, 2 Corinthians 10? Second, ten, second Corinthians chapter 10, a lot we could do on this one, all right? Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now, that's interesting, okay? For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the uh, pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now here, just meaning that we're, our battle is a spiritual battle. Now, th- this is kind of, I, I don't know if this works. I'm just throwing out, I, I love to throw out ideas. And I, I, I know you could argue that it's saying, I think we typically read this, that we don't fight in a fleshly way, right? Do, does that how we typically read this? That we don't fight in a fleshly way. We fight in a spiritual way, right? And, I, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. I just think that it's kind of a weird, I, I, I'm just trying to figure out how that works with the temptation thing, right? Because if I'm, if I'm not fighting in a fleshly way, then how am I fighting it? Because most of the things we come up with are very fleshly things to do, right? Don't go here, don't do that, this, accountability. We do all of these fleshly things that everyone does to overcome a problem or an addiction, right? I mean, we follow the same steps that almost any program comes up. We don't, Christianity doesn't have like, here's the spiritual approach. So I wonder, I'm not saying this text proves it. If we're not, how, how the exact language there is we don't war after the flesh. Is that how it says it? Okay, so I know it's saying don't fight it in a fleshly way, but I wonder if in a roundabout way, I'm not saying that this text proves it, but I'm just thinking out loud. Not only do we not fight after the flesh, the fight really is an internal fight against a spiritual nature, right? It's our fallen nature that we're fighting against. I I think we typically fight against what? Where is our focus typically in the fight? It's, it, we're either trying to fight our flesh or we're trying to fight the external. Now, I know we shouldn't fight it in a fleshly way, but I think in some ways, I'm not saying this text goes here, but I'm saying that our fight really is an internal fight. We got to fight spiritually a spiritual fall of a fallen nature. That's all, all, the whole thing is a spiritual war, right? From what we're fighting, how we're fighting is all spiritual. I don't know exactly how that spiritual thing happens, but that seems to imply that whatever is going on, I got to fight this in a spiritual way. And I think we typically look to fleshly techniques instead of spiritual techniques. Just an idea. And then the most famous one, we're out of time. We we can do some more work on that one is Galatians. This one is the go-to one. This is, man... Everyone goes to this one. 
I mean, I don't even know how we process this. Galatians 5.16, to this day, I don't know how to process this. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, that is used to teach what? Spiritual perfectionism. All you got to do is walk in the Spirit, and guess what? You'll stop fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Next verse says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envying, murder, drunkenness, revelings, such alike. I've told you before, that, uh, that if they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is da-da-da-da. Now, I wish it was true, but I, I don't know. Everyone, I've heard all the sermons on it. Just walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Typically, guess how it's preached. If you walk in the Spirit, your direction in life will not be these things. In other words, they won't define you. In other words, they minimize what it means. I mean, you may commit some of these, but they won't define you. It won't be your direction. So you're just minimizing. Like, no, it says that if I walk in the flesh, if I walk in the spirit, I will not gratify the lust of the flesh. That's what it seems to say. I don't know how that works. How does that work? I don't know how that works. I know one way it works. Well, you could argue we're not always in the spirit, but even if you say that, you're still saying that if I can figure out how to do it, then I'm going to be perfect. So then you have to minimize that it doesn't really mean perfect. The only options I have are, one, we walk in the spirit in what way? Positionally. And positionally, do I ever fulfill the lust of the flesh? No, never. Never positionally. Now, I know that's not satisfying enough, I know it's not satisfying enough. And not only that, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Typically, when it says to walk in the Spirit, guess what it always turns into? A list of do's. How do you walk in the Spirit? You wake up every morning at 6 a.m. and you pray till 7 a.m. And then you do Bible study from 7 to 8 a.m. Okay? So the first two hours of your day, and then in the middle of the day, and then you've got to make sure you're praying without ceasing. You've got to make sure you're confessing your sins. You've got to make sure you're repenting. And then you, it becomes a list of all these do's, 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 do's. Okay? Right? So, yeah. So, guess what? Everyone sits in the pew going, amen, but everyone knows they're not going to do all of those things. So, the, but then everybody's like, okay, well, hey, yeah, if you... If you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then whenever people start arguing, I just want to say, well, do you? Well, I mean, no. So what are we arguing about? Because I've yet to meet anyone who walks in the spirit in such a way that they do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Or they minimize it. Well, it just, it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It just means that the character of our life will be more this than that. It doesn't say that. Right? It says we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So, those are not, I don't have a good answer. I know this, and I'll end with this. We know where the problem is. And the problem is where? In me. So, here's what I know. 
I'll just, I'll just throw these out quickly. Number one, we know that we're never going to just defeat temptation. There's just no way. We're always going to be tempted. Number two, obviously, we have to be open and honest with what those lusts are and what that desire is. We got to be honest with it. We just got to be honest with it. You don't have to be honest with everyone, but you got to be honest with yourself, right? And then we do know that we have to then try to fill our minds and our hearts with that which is found in God's word, which is what? Contrary to what is inside. Now, that's not going to guarantee anything, but at least constantly reminds me when I desire this, I know the scripture goes against it. At least I know I'm in conflict. Doesn't mean I change the scripture so that I can get what I want. It just means that I, I can acknowledge, hey, this is wrong. You say, well, that doesn't really fix anything. I'm not saying it fixes anything, but at least I'm acknowledging that it's wrong, right? I'm not going to pretend, okay? And, and I don't know what else you do other than that. And then you get into all the confusing things. God doesn't tempt you, but you're yet to pray, lead me not into temptation. And if God is not tempting me, I got a million problems with how to understand that God is not the one tempting me since he created everything and he doesn't remove the temptation. I, 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 the whole whole thing is just mind-blowingly confusing, right? So, so I, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know how to even try to, pro, I don't, there's no way to process it. There's no logical way out of it. You're just going to end up in this circle. God doesn't tempt you. Well, wait a minute. Part of a temptation is a trial. Are you telling me God is not in charge of the trial? Well, we say God brings trials. But if it brings a trial, isn't that bringing a temptation? That's a problem, right? I'm supposed to pray, lead me not into temptation. Well, why do I need to ask someone who's not tempting me to lead me not into temptation? And if I say, lead me not into temptation, does that mean he's going to keep me from temptation? Well, he can't keep me from temptation because the temptation comes from where? Inside. Yeah, yeah. I I don't have any answers for that. But I, I know at least James is willing to acknowledge where the problem is. And the problem is where? Inside. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come, we come before you this evening. Lord, we have lots of questions and not a lot of answers. But Lord, we're just thankful that you, at least in your word, gives us clear indication of where the problem is. How we manage and fight that problem, the one thing we all know is we're not going to manage it and we're not going to be successful. That's why you sent your son to die for us because our only hope is in the fact that he was tempted yet without sin. And in him, we are without sin. And we're grateful for that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.